Matthew chapter 9 will be our passage this morning, um, but it plays heavily on some themes that uh, might be necessary for us to kind of wrap our minds around uh, before we look at the passage itself, particularly themes of shepherd and sheep, which would have been quite familiar to those who were maybe hearing the message for the first time if you were a resident of the ancient Near East because these were the sort of ubiquitous signs all around you on the hills, on your travels, everywhere you went, you would have seen sheep and shepherds. And that would have been the case in the Middle East for thousands of years. Even to today, it was a regular part of the landscape. And so to speak about a shepherd or speak about sheep sort of conjured up images that would have been very familiar in the minds of any reader in the ancient Near East. I tried to think about, you know, in our own context, what that might be. And I thought maybe cowboys, you know, for us, a kind of unique and distinctively American thing. Many of us grow up playing cowboys or watching cowboys on TV or thinking about cowboys, dressing up as cowboys. We just sort of, when we hear the word, it, it just sort of comes with some associations in our mind that don't even need to be explained. It's all sort of packaged together in the terminology. Well, the same would be true if you were a, a, a reader or a resident of the ancient Near East and you began to hear discussion about sheep and shepherds because this was sort of all around you, not only physically, but even in the language. It became adopted in the sort of uh, discourse of the day. Uh, shepherds became major metaphors for images in the ancient Near East. Kings and princes and various leaders would be pictured as shepherds. We have reliefs uh, carved of Mesopotamian kings with shepherd crooks on them. We know that the Egyptians called their pharaohs shepherds. It was kind of an ideal that was always placed out there that somehow their leaders would embody certain characteristics of shepherds, which in the grandest scheme of things were simply those who watched out for, who cared for, who provided for, who protected a flock of people. One of the main jobs of a shepherd would have been leading their flock from various place to various place in order to find enough water and enough vegetation so that they could survive in an arid, dry land like, uh, you, like you have in the, in the Middle East. They would have to be vigilant, guardians, if you will, because there were always lions and wolves and leopards and all of those who would be trying to infiltrate or snatch from the flock. They had to be aware of the weak, uh, the laggards, the ones who would fall behind the, 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 the flock when you traveled, the ones who were always sort of prone to wandering. They had to be always aware of all of those things, and they had to be willing to risk their own lives. There was a kind of a selfishness that was associated with a shepherd. And so these ideals became sort of embedded and packaged in the mind of someone from the ancient Near East, when they heard of a shepherd, this is what they came to idealize. Although they didn't maybe frequently experience it when it came to their leaders. They may have spoken or pictured their leaders that way, but they were often disappointed. 
because they had leaders, they had kings, they had princes who were anything but selfless, selfish, anything but selfless. They were selfish. They were anything but willing to lay themselves down. They often did not provide. They often did not nourish. They often did not protect. There was a, a deep, deep longing among many of the peoples that they would have uh, that kind of a leader, but they just never experienced it. Within Israel, this same image was taken up and it was used even of the Lord himself. The Lord himself pictures himself as a shepherd for the people of Israel. One who guided them and, and, and took care of them, even coming out of Egypt in the form of a pillar of fire and a cloud of smoke. His presence with, was with them and guiding them and directing them and providing for them water from a rock, manna from heaven, all of the things that you would expect from a shepherd. He was meeting all of their needs. He pictured himself. He called himself a shepherd. But it wasn't just him. He even... He even entrusted the care of his people to what we might call under-shepherds. Men like Moses and Aaron and others who uh, came along in the way and they themselves were sort of keeping the Lord's flock. Psalm 77 verse 20, you led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. So you have this image very early on within Israel, of God's shepherding care. And not only that, him even sort of appointing these leaders under them that, that manage the care. They themselves, especially in the early iterations, they themselves had the kind of heart that God had. They wanted to see God's people cared for. They wanted to see God's people protected. Moses even sort of lamented as he knew that his days were coming to an end and he was about to die. He prayed to the Lord in Numbers 27, let the Lord, the God of spirits of all flesh, appoint a man over the congregation who will go out before them and come in before them, who will lead them out and bring them in, that the congregation of the Lord may not be as sheep that have no shepherd. This was his lament. This was his fear. This was his concern. That there would always be someone or some group of people or some faithful sort of uh, uh, a representation of God before the people who would be shepherding them, making sure they had all of those necessary spiritual components taken care of, that they would never find themselves an abandoned and, and hapless flock of people. Now he said that right on the eve of appointing for them one Joshua who would take up the mantle of Moses and lead the people of Israel in the days to come. And then they would go through seasons where they did somewhat languish and God would appoint for them various leaders, shepherds, if you will, along the way, judges at first, then eventually prophets. And then eventually one day he would take a young boy straight out of the fields with his sheep, David, who had been sort of uniquely prepared to be a king in Israel because he had spent his whole life taking care of sheep. 
He had spent his whole life learning how to defend a flock that was entrusted to him. His whole life learning what it meant to uh, save them from the elements of the weather and make sure they had adequate food to risk his own life at the hands of wild beasts to stay up late when necessary and to rise early, to go back and forth and to experience even the sort of the, 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 the loneliness and the isolation that came with leading a flock that was entrusted to him. He learned those character traits and those qualities out in the fields with the sheep. All of these things were sort of the kind of people that God was looking for the kind of people that Israel was longing for and the kind of people that they were blessed to have from time to time. It set up, if you will, a kind of expectation within Israel that they would always have or they would always be under this kind of leadership. Unfortunately, it wasn't always the case. As I said, these were ebbs and flows in the life of Israel. There were some who experienced it. There were many who did not. After Moses and Joshua passed off the scene, there were long periods of time when Israel uh, sort of wandered, if you will, under all kinds of faithless leaders and had to be brought back by various judges. There were seasons after David when there were unfaithful kings and God would send prophets calling them back to faithfulness. And under these unfaithful leaders, these, these unfaithful shepherds, if you will, Israel suffered like any society would suffer, like any nation would suffer. When they have selfish, selfish kings and selfish leaders who are not consumed with protecting and guarding and nourishing, but they're all, consumed, they're all concerned with consuming for themselves, It creates waves of oppression and waves of neglect and waves of misery that flow through a society and a nation. And Israel experienced this. Micaiah, the great prophet, came to Ahab in 1 Kings 22, verse 17, sort of taking up the words of Moses And saying to Ahab, I saw all Israel scattered on the mountains as sheep who have no shepherd. The fear of Moses had become a reality just 350, 400 years after his life. Israel was scattered. Israel was suffering. Israel was battered and bruised. And the worst part about it is it didn't necessarily come from the wolves on the outside. It was actually coming from the shepherds on the inside. They were the ones who actually began to abuse the sheep. So that by the time you reach the 7th or 6th century, you hear from two notable prophets, Jeremiah and Jeremiah 23, who pens a, a great chapter of woe to the shepherds, he says in the first verse of that chapter, woe to the shepherds who destroy and scatter the sheep of my pasture. But the more pronounced and the more thoroughgoing judgment and, and rebuke of the shepherds comes from the pen of Ezekiel. 
In Ezekiel 34, you have an entire chapter kind of dedicated to this rebuke of Israel's shepherds. God tells Ezekiel, he says, Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say, even to the shepherds. Thus says the Lord God, O shepherds of Israel, who have been feeding yourselves. Should not the shepherds feed the sheep? You eat the fat, you clothe yourselves with wool, you slaughter the fat ones, but you do not feed the sheep. The weak you have not strengthened, the sick you have not healed, the injured you have not bound up, the stray you have not brought back, the lost you have not sought, with force and harshness you rule them, so that they're scattered, because there's no shepherd, and they become food for all the wild beasts. My sheep are scattered. They wander all over the mountains and on every high hill. My sheep are scattered all over the face of the earth with none to search and none to seek for them. So you hear the lament of the Lord, even as he looks at the situation and recognizes that this is the state of his people. His people have been plunged into a state of affairs where they are absolutely neglected spiritually. And as a result of that neglect, They live day by day suffering the consequences of sin in their society and the waywardness even in their own homes and their own life because they have no one to feed them, no one to steer them, no one to guard them, no one to heal them. Self-appointed, corrupt shepherds had taken over Israel. And instead of protecting and feeding They were fattening themselves. The nation was vulnerable. Militarily, most of the time. Spiritually, all the time. They were hungry. They were wounded. They were lost. And above all this, there was a kind of callousness that descended on society so that from the top down, from the shepherds down, There was an insensitivity to the needs of one another, which shouldn't surprise us when we understand the law of God, which is summarized by Christ, first of all, by loving God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, second of all, by loving your neighbor as yourself. It shouldn't surprise us then that when the shepherds of God's flock are not feeding them on the law of God, that there kind of becomes a societal selfishness that that ensues. And so now there was within the flock not only abusive shepherds, but there were abusive sheep. There were sheep who were taking advantage of one another. The weak, the sick, the oppressed, they were left behind and forgotten. Israel had been founded with this very high expectation that they would have a shepherd. And yet they were disappointed over and over and over again. And yet remarkably, God says in Exodus 34, after he had rebuked the shepherds, after he had told them he was going to hold them accountable for all their ways, he goes on to say this in verse 11, Ezekiel 34. Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I, I myself will search for my sheep and seek them out. 
That's remarkable. If you can hear what he's saying, he even sort of accentuates it with a compounded first person here. I, I myself, the situation has gotten so bad, I cannot entrust this to anyone else. I myself, I'm going to show up and I'm going to search out my sheep. As a shepherd, he says in verse 12, seeks out his flock when he's among his sheep that have been scattered. So I will seek out my sheep. I will rescue them from all the places where they've been scattered on the day of dark clouds and deep, uh, excuse me, thick clouds and deep darkness. So the Lord is promising, almost like a, a reversion all the way back to the beginning when he was with them in the pillar of fire and the, and the cloud that led him in the wilderness. He's almost going back and saying, I'm, I'm going I'm to have to come in. I'm going to have to reestablish my presence with you. Verse 15, he says, I, will be, I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep. And I myself will make them lie down, declares the Lord. I'll seek the lost. I'll bring back the strayed. I'll, bri- I'll bind up the injured. I'll strengthen the weak. And the fat and the strong I will destroy. I will feed my flock in justice. So the Lord sees the desperate plight. He understood the desperate plight of Israel. And he speaks to them in the language of this shepherding. He speaks to them in the language that they would have understood. The language of of abused and neglected herds of sheep that they may have experienced somewhere along the way. He speaks to them in a way that connects with their own deepest longings. They may not have fully connected in their hearts why they were experiencing oppression, why they felt so abandoned, why their heart was filled with so little hope. But he's trying to help them to understand that it is their hapless, worthless pseudo-shepherds who are over them, who are not feeding them, and he promises to show up and do it. Now, interestingly, it doesn't just end with that, because in verse 23, he goes on to say this, And I will set over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he'll feed them, he'll feed them, And be their shepherd, and I, the Lord, will be their God, and my servant David will be prince among them. I am the Lord, I have spoken. So now you have this sort of remarkable scenario where Israel is hearing that God is going to come and actually shepherd them directly himself, and yet somehow, some way, he's also going to bring back David to do this, appoint a new shepherd over them. Now, most Hebrew people would have understood this to some extent. They had probably grown up hearing promises of a coming shepherd, probably promises of a Davidic shepherd. Maybe they didn't connect the dots to realize that it is this Davidic shepherd who would actually be God in their presence. But when we come to Matthew chapter 9 today, all of those Things coalesce and come together in the most beautiful way in the words of Matthew. Listen to what he says and notice how we can easily identify in these verses the true shepherd of Israel. Verse 35, 
Jesus went through all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Matthew is giving us here very familiar language, language that which any Jew would have recognized at this period of time. He's bringing with, uh, into this passage the very powerful metaphor of a shepherd and wedding it together with the words of Moses and Micaiah. And bringing it all within the context of the work, the true work of this true shepherd. And we're going to see as we look at this passage, I think, three elements that help us identify Christ as the true shepherd. They're laid out here for us very plainly, very clearly for anyone who has eyes to see. This, by the way, just to remind you, comes at the, con- at the end of a whole section where Jesus has been healing and casting out demons and doing all kinds of marvelous works. Remember, at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, he had gone out and, and throughout chapter 8 and throughout chapter 9, we've been seeing this over and over and over and over again. Eight separate instances where Jesus was performing miracles of healing and casting out demons time after time after time. Even to the point back in verse 33 where he was healing the mute man who was possessed by a demon. He cast the demon out. The people marvel and they say, never has anything been done like this in Israel. This is unheard of. Not only among our contemporary leaders, but even in the history of the prophets. This surpasses everything that we have ever seen. Powerful displays, not only of healing but powerful displays of compassion and concern and kindness from the Savior. All of this brought enormous popularity. The crowds were swelling everywhere he went. But at the same time, it was raising concern and suspicion and jealousy and criticism from Israel's so-called leaders. So that right before this, in verse 34, you remember the last thing we heard, the last time we were together, were the words of criticism from Israel's pseudo-shepherds, who were basically trying to excuse Christ's ministry by saying he's casting out demons by the power of demons. These self-appointed shepherds sort of exposing their own failure, trying to actually prevent God's people from finding God. Actually trying to prevent them from finding salvation. More concerned with protecting their own power and position than they are with people actually finding the truth of Christ. All that sets us up to understand what we see in verse 35 through 38, the true shepherd of Israel. Set in contrast to these false shepherds. And as I said, he reveals himself here in three different ways. First of all, you can see it in verse 35 with what we might call a comprehensive ministry. Matthew just tells us he was going throughout all these villages and cities and he was healing 
and he was teaching and he was proclaiming. This was, this was everything the shepherd was supposed to do. This was everything that the pseudo-shepherds were not doing. Everything that, 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 that Ezekiel had talked about that was being neglected, he was doing. Uh, Matthew breaks it down for us here with three different descriptions. The first one, teaching. That was Christ's primary role. He was a teacher. He would go all these various places teaching people about the Word of God, even as He healed them and did everything else. This was the centerpiece. He would normally go into the synagogues, as Matthew notes here. These would have been located in every one of the towns. The people would gather Normally, they would hear a reading in the morning from the Pentateuch and a reading from the prophets, and they would invite someone from the congregation to uh, comment or even to preach, to expound on those passages. And frequently, if they had an honored guest, that would be the person that they called on. So we could imagine that in every place Jesus went, he was being invited every Saturday at the Sabbath to, to expound and to preach on these passages. You remember the one in Nazareth when they were, whenever they opened up the Isaiah scroll and they read from Isaiah 61, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because He's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed and proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. And Jesus reads that and He hands it back to the attendant. And he says, this, day, this prophecy is fulfilled in your hearing. It's almost, like a, it's almost like a description of the kind of shepherding ministry that was going to come with this Davidic Messiah. But I'm sure it wasn't that. I'm sure it was all kinds of, of, of passages. And when he wasn't in the synagogue, he was doing what we saw in the Sermon on the Mount. He was correcting and he was, he was bringing light and clarity to the confusion that had been brought by Israel's false and pseudo-shepherds. He was telling them, you've heard that it was said, but I say to you, you've been taught this, but this is what the law of God really says. This is what you've been taught as righteousness, but I'm telling you, your righteousness has to exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees, or you'll never enter the kingdom of God. And so everywhere he's going, what's he doing? He's feeding He's feeding the people. He's finally giving them the nourishment and the strength and the, and the truth that they have to have for their souls. Matthew says along with that, he's proclaiming the kingdom of God, which was this sort of second descriptor. It's not necessarily different. It is, uh, we might say, the other side of the coin. There are some people who who take this sort of, uh, you know, preaching and teaching and set them in opposition to one another as if they're, they're two different things. Uh, they might even describe their, their pastor, you know, he's more of a preacher or more of a teacher. But they're not two different things. Uh, we've already seen this, how these two words are brought together again and again in the Scripture equally, synonymously to describe Christ's ministry One of them focuses more on the act of proclamation, the announcement of the good news. The other, the word teaching, focuses more on the content that is being delivered. But all this is really describing for us is that Jesus was going out and he was, we might say, aggressively, boldly, uh, in, in very open ways, proclaiming the truth of God everywhere he went. 
And it came with explanation and it came with exposition and it came with clarity and it came with conviction, but it came with spiritual nourishment because he's the true shepherd. And then finally, Matthew says he's healing, which is his third description here. He's healing. Every disease, every affliction, going around to all these places, bringing about renewal. Now, this is, by the way, not the first time we've seen this. You may remember all the way back in Matthew 4.23, right before the Sermon on the Mount. We already read that Jesus was going through all of Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel and healing diseases. I think it says specifically that he was healing every disease and every affliction among the people, so his fame spread throughout all of Syria and they were bringing with him all the sick and all the afflicted with various diseases and pains and oppressed by demons epileptics paralytics and he healed them all this was extensive he traveled around everywhere he didn't limit his ministry to some sort of monthly or annual stage event He healed in the course of his ministry. He healed everyone that was brought to him. He healed them completely. There was no sort of recuperative period. They uh, they were restored immediately and powerfully. And he was demonstrating here exactly what the good shepherd is going to do. The one one who was going to come directly from God. In fact, God himself. And he was going to take care of those who were diseased and those who were wounded and those who were weak. And he was going to directly, directly care for them like a shepherd cares for his sheep. Everywhere. Doing this kind of work. Demonstrating all the care. All the concern. All the compassion. All the ideal of everything that Israel had always been taught to hope for. Meeting physical needs in a very practical way, meeting spiritual needs in a very real way, feeding and nourishing them spiritually, ministering to them physically. By the way, if you were in the study of the book of Ezekiel and reading about this good shepherd, You wouldn't find him mentioned only in Ezekiel 34. As you move on through Ezekiel 35, 36, 37, you realize that there's a whole ministry that he's going to bring that involves a whole spiritual renewal within Israel. In fact, when you get to chapter 37, the prophet begins to picture Israel as a pile of bones. Very dry bones, bones that have been laying out in the sun for a long period of time. So they are exceedingly dry, laying out in a valley. Ezekiel 37, verse 11, the bones of the house of Israel were sitting there and the people said, behold, our bones are dried up and our hope is lost. We are indeed cut off. This is not only the way that they were pictured, this is the way they felt. 
And yet the Lord promises to breathe life into those dry bones, breath into their bodies and clothe them with flesh and actually revive them from their death. And when all that's said and done in verse 22, he says that they will, verse 23, excuse me, they will not defile themselves anymore with idols or detestable things with any of their transgressions, but I will save them from all their backslidings in which they've sinned. I will cleanse them and they'll be my people and I will be their God and my servant David will be king over them and they shall have one shepherd. See, there was a message with this shepherd. Not only was he coming to bind up their material, physical needs, but he was coming because they're spiritually, spiritually dead. Dry, hopeless, lost. So here's this Davidic shepherd and his ministry, you understand, is encompassing all of that. He's doing all of that. He's healing them. He's taking care of the weak. He's bringing back the strayed. At the same time, he's nourishing them spiritually and he's breathing life into their dry bones. This is the true shepherd. This is the one that they had longed for. They've been taught to hope for. This is the one who stands in contrast to all of their corrupt and selfish leaders who had oppressed them, who had downgraded their society, their nation, their life. This is the Davidic shepherd. And he cared for all the sheep. That's not the only way you identify him, though. You can also identify him in verse 36 by his compassionate motive. He had that comprehensive ministry. Here we see the compassionate motive. As Matthew notes, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed. Literally, the word is beaten or mangled or battered or bruised. That's sort of a spiritual descriptor of where they were. And they were helpless. It's a word uh, for falling to the ground. Some places uh, uh, translate it as downtrodden, but it pictures someone lying on their back and completely vulnerable to any kind of attack. So here they are. They're harassed. They're helpless. They're vulnerable. They may have some sort of religious knowledge. They might go to the, the synagogue from time to time and the temple every so often. They might be brought up in a religious society, but the reality is they're spiritually bruised and battered and empty and helpless and hopeless and lost. And Jesus sees all of that and he is moved with compassion. He's grieved that all of these people have been in this religious society and system for so long and yet all it has brought to them is confusion and pain and, and, and darkness and, and abuse and all of these things. And so he's burdened, as any true shepherd would be. He's disturbed by the way they're being exploited and mistreated and neglected. And he's overwhelmed with compassion. Like Moses, whenever Moses was getting ready to depart, he's overwhelmed and he just, he could not think of the thought of, of Israel in that kind of a condition. Like Micaiah, who was grieving whenever he came to Ahab because he saw what Ahab had done to the nation of Israel. And here's Jesus, and he's looking out uh, across all these vast crowds who are gathering around him, and he cannot, he cannot quite comfort his heart. 
because he knows what they've been going through. No one's been paying attention to their needs. No one has been tending to them spiritually. No one has been answering the deepest longings of their heart. No one has been bringing clarity to the confusion that they feel inside. No one has helped them assuage their guilt. No one has been able to lift the burdens that they feel because of their because of their. Uh, disobedience to God. No one has been able to bring them into communion and reconciliation with their God. They go through their life constantly downtrodden, constantly feeling exposed, constantly vulnerable, constantly fearful. And the true shepherd sees them and he is moved. He doesn't want it to be that way. He doesn't want you Right now, He doesn't want you to feel that way. He doesn't want you to continue to wonder, feeling abandoned, left alone. He doesn't want you walking in the darkness of your own sort of guilt and shame. He doesn't want you walking in the confusion. He doesn't want you alienated from God. He doesn't want that. He feels compassion when He sees a sheep like that. It grieves Him. It grieves them to know that you'll be pursued by ravenous beasts who want to devour your soul. It grieves them that you'll be feeding on worthless ideas and foolish schemes. It grieves them that you'll be trapped in patterns of your own sin and enslaved to your own desires. It grieves them that you'll be inflicted with so much pain, not only from your own life, but even from those who oppress you. It grieves them. That you'll be duped even by false spiritual leaders. For all those reasons, the Lord has moved. He's moved. And He begins to do everything He can to lift burdens, to heal the sick, to proclaim the truth, to teach the Scripture, to help people to know God. In doing all that, He is the first sort of the first glimpse of the fulfillment of the promise in Ezekiel. He's the first true shepherd. He's the Davidic shepherd. He's the one that was promised and he's giving us here a demonstration of what that promise really was all about. It's about a man who comes and preaches the truth, who reconciles people to God, who breathes life into their dead souls and even lifts their physical burdens and restores them both spiritually and physically. All of that demonstrated in his earthly ministry. Now, unfortunately... He wasn't allowed to continue. As we all know, he would eventually be arrested, crucified, laid in a tomb, buried, hopefully, by his enemies, forgotten. We know that this earthly kingdom which he started to give a glimpse of was cut short because of the hostility of Israel's pseudo-shepherds. But thankfully, it is not the end. He promises this kingdom to come when the true shepherd will come and he'll do everything that he did in his earthly life, but he'll do it on a worldwide scale. He'll bring in the lost. He'll establish his flock. 
He'll magnify His mercy. He'll be the true shepherd. However, in the meantime, there's a tremendous amount of work that needs to be done, which brings us really to the final element of this identity of him as the true shepherd. It's this compelling mobilization that he gives us in verse 37 and 38. A compelling mobilization where Jesus kind of shifts metaphors from the shepherd to the harvest. And and, and in doing that, he demonstrates still the heart of a shepherd. He recognizes there's tremendous amount of work to be done, even in his own lifetime, He knew he wouldn't be able to get around to it. In his incarnation, in his human flesh, he took on these temporary limitations. But even with that, he's burdened. He's burdened for what cannot be done, what must be done. And understanding all that with the heart of a shepherd, he turns to his followers in verse 37, and he says to them, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. In other words, there's a disconnect here between the number of laborers and the amount of work that needs to be done. There are too few laborers. That's the point. There were probably, we're told by Josephus, maybe 200 towns in Galilee with at least 15,000 people. If Christ went and spent just a day in each one of those towns and spent a day traveling in between them with the Sabbath off. He couldn't even cover all of those towns in the course of two years. He, he was overwhelmed by the magnitude of just Galilee. And even going into these towns, he couldn't touch every person. He couldn't be with every person. And if he could, he didn't have the necessary time to spend with each one of them to teach them everything they needed to know. He couldn't take the time to counsel them. He couldn't show them individually how their sin had twisted their life. He didn't have time to show them that by the power of the Spirit, repentance could restore and renew and fill their life with blessing. He couldn't warn them about all the dangers on the horizon. He couldn't ward off every uh, wolf and beast who would come and snatch them away. He couldn't be there when they fell sick. He couldn't be there when they were cast down and deprived and oppressed. He couldn't bind up their wounds. He couldn't fill their needs. He couldn't provide for them. He knew all those things. And yet he, as the heart of a shepherd, wanted that for his people. And so now he wants his disciples to understand that all this still has to be done. There was so much need. The harvest was indeed plentiful. It's plentiful. Now don't overread this. The point Jesus is trying to make is just the disconnect between the plentiful harvest and the few workers. He's not suggesting that the harvest work is going to be easy. Some people read that and imagine that Jesus is encouraging you just step out into the fields of the world and move your hand this direction and you're going to get a bountiful basket. You know, move your hand in that direction. You'll have sort of a bounty of converts. You know, it'd be so easy. People just be falling all over themselves to come into the kingdom. That's not the point. It's not the point he was trying to make and it certainly wasn't even his own experience. He knew that the harvest work would still be hard. But he knew that if it was going to be done, it needed workers. And so there was this massive, massive need for shepherds. 
And so he compels his disciples, therefore pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Pray for the God who promised a shepherd. Pray to him and ask him to send out more of these kinds of shepherds. It's interesting when he looks out at the harvest, he doesn't even pray for the harvest. It's not even immediately telling you to go. He's not even telling you to pray for the lost. His first and his primary concern was be that you recognize the source of where the shepherds are going to come from and who they serve and who's sending them out. And that you appeal to him and plead to him that he would send out the kind of shepherds that he needs. Now, in the coming weeks, we're going to see that not only did Jesus teach this, but it is almost immediately answered in verse 1 of chapter 10. Because we see there that Jesus not only calls for them to pray for this, but he calls to himself 12 disciples. He gives them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and every affliction. And then down in verse 5, These 12 Jesus sent out, instructing them, go nowhere among the Gentiles and enter no town of the Samaritans, but rather go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel and proclaim as you go, saying the kingdom of heaven is at hand, heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the lepers, cast out demons. You received without paying, give without paying. Acquire no gold or silver or copper for your belts, no bag for your journey or two tunics or sandals or staff, for the laborer deserves his food. Now, two things are going on there. We'll expound it more in a couple weeks, but I want you to just take note. Two things. First of all, these guys are being uniquely powered. These 12 are being uniquely powered to do exactly what Christ had been doing. They were an extension of his ministry while he was on earth. And secondly, they were the exact opposite of Israel's pseudo-shepherds. They were not trying to consume. They were not trying to take. They were not trying to fatten themselves. They were not trying to devour the sheep. They were going with attention, with compassion, with clarity, with an understanding of the Lord of the shepherd. And he even warns them down in verse 16, behold, I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So you hear this shepherd sheep language. It just carries all the way through. You're you're seeking the lost sheep of the house of Israel. You're sending out, I'm sending out like sheep among wolves. This, guys, this is the heart of a shepherd. This is the true shepherd. This is the one that Israel had hoped for and and prayed for and longed for. And if you were outside of Israel and if you were talking to any other pagan nation, this is probably what they tell you they hoped for. Their pharaohs, their Mesopotamian kings, their Gentile and Greek kings, Roman kings, it didn't matter. They all had suffered under the selfish, greedy, oppressive, corrupt hands of society in the world, they long for a shepherd like this. And the good news is he came. He came. 
He came and he proved himself to be the true shepherd. But you know some other part of the shepherd's ministry, Jeremiah accounts it in verse 4 of Jeremiah 23, after pronouncing woe against the shepherds, he says, I'll set shepherds over them who will care for them, and they'll have no more fear, nor be dismayed, neither shall any be missing, declares the Lord. So one of the roles of the great shepherd is going, he, is going to be, he's going to send out true under-shepherds. People who learn shepherding from him. They're filled with the Spirit. They're attentive to the needs of the flock. They feed genuine nourishing truth. They proclaim salvation to the lost. Renewal to the dry and dead in the kingdom of God. Even after Christ ascends back to the Father after His resurrection, He still wants these kinds of shepherds doing shepherding work, preparing for the day when He returns, the great shepherd of our souls, to establish His kingdom. He still, he still understands that the need, the harvest is great. He still wants you praying to the Lord of the harvest that he would be sending out those laborers. He still wants his people cared for the way that he would care for them. This is the Lord, the great shepherd. This is the one who is seeking you if you're lost. This is the one who has compassion if you are broken. This is the one who wants to bind up your wounds and heal you. This is the one who wants to nourish your empty soul, lift the burdens of your conscience, restore you to a relationship with God. This is the true shepherd. And while he has left this earth for a time, he will return again. And he has his shepherds proclaiming the gospel to you, calling you into the fold of God. That's our challenge to you this morning. If you're here this morning and you sense that God is calling you, you know that you've been lost and you have a sense that the Spirit of God is drawing you to him, we want to encourage you today. Don't leave here continually subjecting yourself to the dangers, to the ravaging beast of the world, to the wayward paths, to the weak elements of the world. Don't leave here without becoming a part of God's fold through the great shepherd. Jesus says it in John 10. He's the, he's the door, the door of the sheepfold. You enter by him. And you'll be saved. Let's stand together. We'll be dismissed with a word of prayer. Father, we're grateful for this and thankful for our shepherd. Thankful for the one who's filled with compassion, a heart for the lost. He sought us out and brought us in. And we bless him. Lord, for those who are here today who do not know you, they are still wondering They're still afflicted. They're still oppressed 
and distressed, downtrodden and harassed, afflicted in their conscience, lost in the world. Lord, we pray for them. By your mercy, would you seek them out, bring them into your fold, and lead them into your pastures. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.